is such a thrill for me to uh, uh, be here. And it's such a thrill for me to get to do this in connection with our preaching ministers. And to hear David's sermon this morning as David worked through the John passage, knowing not only would he make his points from that passage, but that in addition, I would have a chance to explore it a little bit deeper with y'all, looking at what we have read this week in the Context Bible. And so we pick up where Pastor David uh, uh, left off as Jesus begins his ministry. And that was our beginning point. Jesus begins his ministry, John 1, 35 through 39. The next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now, bear with me. Jesus turned, saw them following, and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus says to them, Will you come and you'll see? So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. Now, this is where Pastor David started this morning. And it's so interesting, if you were listening to Pastor David's sermon, these disciples very quickly start telling others, come see the Messiah. We found the Messiah. And you think, how did they know Jesus was the Messiah? Because they had been following John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was there telling everyone he was preparing the way for the Messiah. So when John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, there he is. These disciples were so tightly bound to John and so faithful to John's message that they received that and on John's statement started following John's cousin, Jesus. And so that's what we have. Now let's look at it in a little more detail with the contextual scriptures that I put to support it. And to do that, we want to key off of one of the words here, disciples. John is standing with two of his disciples. He looks at Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now, disciples is a great word. And if we want to envision what's going on here, it helps for us to understand the word disciples. So I throw up a chalkboard, which when I was a kid was green. Evidently now, my daughter tells me, they're black. And sometimes they're white. But I don't see how they work white because the chalk's not going to show up. So we're going black. Disciples. The word disciples is a Greek word, masetes. We'll put that into English letters for you. Masetes. Now, mathetes is a Greek word. It means a student or a pupil or an apprentice, but specifically one that's attached to a certain teacher. You could go back into the Greek world and you would find Socrates or Aristotle or Plato or any number of Greek teachers, and they would have students that attached themselves to the teacher. 
we have a different mentality today. Today we think of teachers at school. If you ask one of my daughters, uh, Rebecca, who are your teachers? She can rattle them off. But she has a different teacher for algebra than she does chemistry, than she does Spanish, than she does debate, than she does English. Different teachers. And that's our system. But it wasn't the system in the Greek world and it wasn't the system in the Hebrew world. Paul was a student of Gamaliel. You found one teacher and you attached yourself to them, not for two semesters or four years of two semesters. You attached yourself to them as a follower or an apprentice until they released you to be the teacher on your own. And so John has got several disciples, people who are attached to him, and John actually reattaches them. If we were chemists, there's a word for that. I think when chemical bonds separate and change dance partners. That's what they're doing. These two disciples are separating from the teacher they thought they'd follow forever because that teacher said, go over there and follow Jesus instead. So they do. They followed Jesus. Now you get that image? That helps us with the contextual reading. And this is a contextual day where reading through this actually aids us to understand the John passage better. So I spend a little bit more time in John than I would ordinarily. The first passage was Mark 1, 9 through 13. Now Mark tells us the same story, but he puts it into this context. It's right after the baptism of Jesus. So when Jesus, who's baptized by John the Baptist, when Jesus comes out of the water, Mark says immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. That's kind of a cool passage. Look at it this way. Mark 9, when he saw being torn open, the heavens being torn open. What, uh, okay, I'm sorry Mark keeps doing that. Mark likes to make an appearance. When the heavens are torn open, let's pull back up the chalkboard for this one too. The word torn open in the Greek is a great word. It's a word you probably can figure out real fast. You ready? Here's the Greek word in Greek letters. Let me pronounce it. Schizo. Being torn in two. Being torn open. Rent apart. Schizo. It means split. Have you ever met anybody whose personality lent themselves towards being called split? Or schizophrenic. In this way, we went to the passage that's being called up by this. It's Isaiah 64. And this is a marvelous passage that just puts into context what's going on with Jesus and the heavens opening in a spectacular way. 
in Isaiah 64, it's just 12 short verses. But if we can go to the Elmo, I want us to really appreciate and thank Stephen for his Bible today. I told Stephen, I said, I left my Bible at home. Actually, I left it in the wrong car. And he said, well, you can use mine. He said, but you never want to write on mine. And I said, yeah, it's your Bible. He said, I would rather, if it helps, teach one person what you're saying. You write in my Bible than you not. So with that heart, I got lost. (laughs) I didn't bring mine because I didn't want to write in my Bible this morning. Oh. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would split the heavens and come down. Isaiah the prophet is writing amongst the people who are God's called, but don't live like it who have chased after idols, who have done evil in the sight of the Lord, who live so far removed from what God would have them be or do that it's it's stunning to even think of them as God's chosen. And God will send against them foreign powers to judge them and to destroy them. And in the midst of that, This sinful people and Isaiah who dwells among sinful people and recognizes his own sin, Isaiah 6. Isaiah calls out to God, oh, that you would split the heavens, that the heavens would be torn apart, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Precisely what he does at the baptism of Jesus. He answers Isaiah's prayer. He just waits six, seven centuries to do it. But he answers the prayer that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and causes water to boil so that when you do this, things change. We need a change on earth and the only way we're going to get that change is for God to rend the heavens and to come down. Make his name known to his adversaries that the nations might tremble at his might. When you did awesome things that we didn't even look for. If you were in worship this morning, an incredible worship service led by our praise team and our choir and Brent. Then Pastor David got up and he read that passage of scripture that that Christ died for us while we were yet ungodly. It's not anything anybody was looking for. No, everybody was stunned. You did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. By by that, it, it doesn't mean seen a God next to God. He's saying, no one has seen any God like you. No one has ever seen a God who acts for those who wait for them, who meet us, who joyfully work righteousness, who remembers us in our ways. Behold, Behold, thank you. You were angry and we sinned. In our sins, 
We've been a long time. And shall we be saved? We've all become like one who's unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name. No one who rouses himself to take hold of us. You've hidden your face from us. You've made us melt in the hands of our iniquities. We are horrible sinners. We have done so much so wrong. We have left ourselves a wretched mess. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and change us. And rescue us. And redeem us. Oh, Lord, you're our father. We're the clay. You're our potter. We're all the work of your hand. Don't be so terribly angry. Don't remember our iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion, a wilderness, Jerusalem, a desolation, our holy and beautiful house where our father's praise has been burned by fire. Our pleasant places have become ruined. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? No. Back to the PowerPoint, please. He won't. He will rend the heavens. He will come down. He will descend upon Jesus. Do you think John the Baptist, after this happened, had any doubt in his mind that Jesus was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world? Do you see in the context, the flow of this, that for centuries, the cry of Isaiah has echoed through the chambers of Israel and Judah. For generations the cry has been, we're wretched, we're sinful, we don't even seek God. Our best deeds are like polluted garments. Will you rend the heavens and come down and transform us and save us? And John the Baptist is there. And Jesus comes and says, I want to be baptized. And John says, why? You know, I need to be baptized. To fulfill righteousness. Jesus is baptized. He comes up out of the water. And God rends the heavens. He splits its schizo. And down comes the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. Gives you a little more context now for John's account. And a little more understanding why when this happens, John's disciples are so ready to leave their master, John the Baptist, and reattach themselves to Jesus. Puts it into a little context. Okay, what else? So we had Isaiah 64. Luke 5, 1 through 11 adds a little bit more flavor to this. Luke 1, 5, 1 through 11 has the calling of the disciples happening and it unfolds right after this. Pastor David read these passages to us this morning. But right after Jesus' baptism, after these disciples attach themselves, it's then that they uh, uh, Andrew brings in his fishing buddy, Peter, his brother, Peter. And so Luke gives it to us in Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. Let's look at the Luke passage real quick, and then we'll come back to the PowerPoint. 
Luke 5, 1 through 11. I love this story. Um, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's the Sea of Galilee. That's just the Aramaic name for it. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land. He sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. There. And Simon said, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them. They came and filled both boats so they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished in the catch of fish they'd taken. So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon Peter. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now I put this into, if we go back to the PowerPoint, I put this into the PowerPoint because Jesus is beginning his ministry by calling others to him. We have the attachment from John the Baptist. But right on the heels of that, we have Jesus with Simon. And he says to Simon, let's put out and catch. Now, the boat you're seeing here um, in the waters of the Sea of Galilee, I think it was about a decade or so ago. I maybe were a little off on the date. The water had gotten particularly low. And for the first time, there was the remains of what is a first century fishing boat from the time of Christ that was found in the mud and had been preserved. And you can go over and see, they call it the Jesus boat now, but you can go see it in a museum over there by the Sea of Galilee. And so we have a really great idea of what a fisher boat would look like at this time for this story. And that's it. On the Sea of Galilee with the sea behind it. And so Jesus says to Peter, hey, let's go back out. Now, I don't know how many of you have fished. Uh, I enjoy fishing. I'm not the world's greatest fisherman. Um, But it's kind of fun if you're catching fish. If you're not, it is boring. And it gets real old, real fast. And Peter's been working all night. It's time to go home, sell what they caught, and go to sleep. Peter is a fishing pro. He does this for a living. He knows how to do it. 
He knows the good spots. He knows how to set the nets. He knows how to drop the nets. He knows how to pull the nets. He knows how to maneuver the boat. He doesn't have a Yamaha or an Evinrude. He's got to do it with himself. And Jesus, after Peter has fished all night and caught nothing, Peter the fishing pro who makes his living off of it, who's got a team of fishermen with him, is pulling in, and this new guy he's following, the preaching carpenter, says, hey, let's go back out and catch some fish. Now, I'm very proud of Simon Peter for not just looking at Jesus and laughing and saying, I'm going to bed. Instead, he's very responsive. They go back out. They catch fish like they've never caught before. This Jesus is not just a preaching carpenter. He's something special. Then we look and we fast forward to Mark 4, 12 through 15. And in Mark 4, 12 through 15, we had a chance to look. Matthew, thank you. Started to say, that's not what I remember it saying. Matthew 4, 12 through 15. We pick up with John being arrested. When they heard that John had been arrested, John the Baptist, Jesus withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that point, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So with that passage, we can look and, uh, whoops, let's uh, went the wrong way. Jesus actually moves to the seaside town of Capernaum. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us because of our geography. But if we were over in Israel and we lived there and we put it up on a map, we could better follow what's being said here. So this is the map of Israel that I've got on the PowerPoint. You can see the Dead Sea at the bottom and the Sea of Galilee up at the top. Nazareth where Jesus had his carpentry shop, most likely. Nazareth is that star. Capernaum's up at the top. Let's take that section and blow it up a little bit bigger, and you'll see and understand the prophecy better. There's Nazareth. There's Capernaum. That's where Jesus was. Now, the, the Holy Land had been divided among the tribes of Israel. And so there were divisions based upon the 12 sons, the 12 tribes. One of the divisions, I've drawn the bottom part of it here in blue, that was the clan, the tribe of Naphtali. Capernaum was in Naphtali's land. Nazareth was in the land to the south, Zebulun's land. So Jesus from Nazareth moves to Capernaum for his ministry. Capernaum is over near uh, what are called the Decapolis. It comes from two Greek words. Deca is ten. Polis is city. There were ten Greek cities set up in that area. 
So this is an area where Jesus has a ministry that, that's magnified in its scope as opposed to Nazareth, which was a little hill town. This is a thriving community. So Jesus goes there, and that's the passage that Matthew quotes out of Isaiah 9, 1 through 5. Isaiah 9 says, the land of Zebulun, it says what Matthew quotes. So we went and read that just uh, to keep it in context. Isaiah 9 is a great chapter because it's the chapter that says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. It starts out by saying, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea. See? Sea of Galilee. That's a reference to Naphtali and Capernaum and those. The land beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. And this is what continues later to say, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's Jesus. Matthew recognizes it. So if we go back, that's what we've got. We have then the Luke 3 passage, which gave John the Baptist being arrested. And then we finished it with the Mark 1, 14 through 20. I know, I got a call from my brother-in-law on this day. He said, my fingers are two inches shorter because I've had to flip through the Bible. 14 through 20. Told him if he'd work him out a little bit more in the past part of his life, he wouldn't have that trouble now. He'd have calluses. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven's at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. It's all the same thing, but we added finally a contrast. We contrasted Isaiah 42. And if you're reading Isaiah 42, you might have thought, this seems the exact opposite. Why did he put this in here? I put it in there because it's the exact opposite. Look at Isaiah 42, verses 18 and following. Hear, you deaf. Look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I sent. Who's blind is my dedicated one, or blind is a servant of the Lord. He sees many things, but he doesn't observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, trapped in holes, hidden in prisons. They've become plunder with none to rescue, with none spoil, with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, who will listen and attend for the time to come? Who's going to pay attention? And here's the reason I put that in there. If we go back to the PowerPoint. What we have as Jesus begins his ministry is we have three different reactions to the ministry of Jesus. One reaction is that of John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist directed other people to Jesus. He proclaimed who Jesus was and directed people to Jesus so that people would know, go follow Jesus. Then we have the reaction of the disciples. They followed and attached themselves to Jesus. They even let Jesus tell them how to fish. And then we have the reactions of the many. They're trapped by their own blindness and deafness. I mean, that, those, those are the choices. They're trapped by their own blindness and deafness. And it doesn't matter what Jesus does and how Jesus does it. La, 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 la. And they're going to go on about their life. And, 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 you know, one of the, uh, I, I, I read this and I think, boy, I can find myself in column one, two, and three. And I really would like to erase myself from column three. So that's one of my chores. I don't know what yours are my reaction. All right, next day, we looked at Jesus the Messiah. John 1, 40 through 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed was Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. First, he finds his own brother, Simon, and he says, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. One of the two, oh, he brought him to Jesus, excuse me. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, the son of John. You're going to be called Kephas which means Peter. You might be saying, I thought it was Cephas. You might have thought it was Cephas, but it wasn't. It was Kephas, which means Peter. Now, what does this mean? We found the Messiah, which means Christ. Well, first of all, it means John's having to translate Messiah for his readers because he's worried not all of them knows what it means. Let's throw it back up on the chalkboard for a moment. Messiah. When John writes that in this text, what language is John writing in? Greek. So John's writing in Greek, and he writes this Greek word, Messias. Messias. It's M-E-S-S-I-A-S. If you're looking at it thinking that last S looks different than the two in the middle, you're right. They wrote their S differently if it was the end of the word. Okay? So that's Messias. Now, Messias is not your typical Greek word. In fact, Messias is not a Greek word. It's just the Greek letters that fit the Hebrew word Mashiach. Let's put the Hebrew word up there. Here are the letters for the Hebrew word. Now you're sitting there saying, no, that's Kishim. You got to read your Hebrew backwards. M S H I, and then there's an A sound before the C H. So it's Mashiach. Mashiach. And that Hebrew word Mashiach means anointed. You can read about it in the Old Testament, and we will in a bit. They anointed priests, priests were Mashiachs, they anointed kings. Kings were Mashiach. They were anointed. 
But John's got to deal with that. So John says, I'm using this Greek letters on a Hebrew word, which you Greeks may not know what it means. So let me tell you that in Greek, Mashiach means Christos. Christos. The Greek letters translated into English letters. It's the key at the beginning, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S. Again, you see the S at the end is different than the S at the middle. Christos. Christos in Greek is a real word. It's not a name. It's a word. It means anointed. So when John's writing, John says, Peter said, we found the Messiah, the anointed. And he's got to tell his Greek readers, which means Christ or anointed. And so that's what we've got here. Christos becomes Christ in English because we just take off the Greek ending of OS. That's just the tag in the Greek. So it's Christ. That's the root of the word. So that's what he's saying. We found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Jesus sees Simon and says to Simon, your name is Simon. You're the son of John. But in the future, you're going to be called Kephas, which means Peter. Okay, I mean, this is class. Pastor David said you come to class to dig in deeper. So we're just digging in a little deeper. So let's get all of these words down. Simon. Simon or Simeon. In the Greek, it's Simon. Now you're looking and saying, well, that's a really weird S unless you like drove down sorority row for Greek class. Then you would see it as a sigma. That's the capital letter sigma. So that's the capital S. Simon in the Greek. S-I-M-O-N, is the Hebrew word Shimeon. Shimeon. Shimeon, or Simon in Hebrew, comes from this idea of to hear. It's someone who's a listener. That's not a bad thing to be. But Jesus takes the authority of a master at being uh, allowed to rename his pupil, or, or not even just a pupil. We have in the Old Testament... The, the Pharaoh of Egypt renames a king of Israel because the king's his vassal. You can rename the people under you. So Jesus renames him. And he says, no longer are you going to be called Simon. Now you're going to be called Kephas. Kephas. In the Greek, it'd be Kephas. Actually, they'd put a little lilt at the end. It'd be Kephas. So Kephas... They didn't have a soft C like S, S. So it's kephas in the Greek is just Greek for the Aramaic, kaf. Kaf, kaf. You lost yet? Okay. Well, that just means a rock. Kaf means a rock. So he's saying, I'm going to change you from being a hearer to being a rock man. And it is masculine. And Pastor David has a better voice than me. So I can't sing it, but I can sure show it to you. Yes. He becomes Rocky, the rock man. That's Peter. So with that, we went into context and we looked at a, Whoops, we looked at a couple of things. Get that out of the way. Scoot, scoot, scoot. 
We looked at 1 Samuel 8 through 10. That's the anointing of the first king. King Saul becomes a Messiah, an anointed. Then we look at the anointing of the second king, David. He becomes an anointed, a Messiah. And because the kings are anointed, the psalmist would write certain psalms in adoration, respect, homage, and also prayer for the kings. These become known as royal psalms because they're psalms inspired by the king. Some of those psalms the Jews recognized were prophetic and were actually speaking about the ultimate Messiah. The ultimate anointed one who has a full anointing of God. The ultimate one who would be both prophet and priest and king. The ultimate one who would sit on David's throne forever and rule over God's people. So these royal psalms also became known as messianic psalms. Psalms about the anointed, the anointed. And so we've got those, we looked at two of them, Psalm 21 and Psalm 72. Psalm 21, just look at a couple of these verses and see how, how they fit. We'll pick up uh, uh, with verse 1, but then we'll scoot down pretty quick. Psalm 21, verse 1. O Lord, the king in your strength, the king rejoices. You see, this is a royal psalm or a messianic psalm about the anointed king. But in the midst of this, the Jews in Jesus' day and before Jesus' day understood this psalm was talking about the ultimate Messiah to come. And so we see, for example, in verse 5, His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow upon Him. For you make Him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So this is a royal messianic psalm written, no doubt, about the king, but yet at the same time by the Holy Spirit of God, inspirationally speaking to the ultimate king of kings who would come, to the Messiah. We see the same thing in Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is another royal or messianic psalm. So it begins with a prayer. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, crush the oppressor. Continues. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 11. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Look at the end of this, 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. 
Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Those psalms speak to us of the glorious King of Kings, the anointed. If we go back to the PowerPoint, these are our messianic psalms, our royal psalms. Now, we ended the week with two things. We have Nathaniel's call, which I want to talk to you about briefly. And then we have the Song of Solomon, which we only read four chapters of this week. We read the other four next Monday. So that rolls into next week's lesson. You want to hear class on the Song of Solomon? Come next week. It's, uh, it's pretty cool stuff. Now, some would say it's actually hot stuff instead of cool stuff because it can, you know, but we'll look at that next week. John 1, 43 through 51. I'll tell you what, though. I love the Song of Solomon. I could, I got, I was talking to, uh, Dr. Paige Patterson, who's the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary last week. And he said to me, where'd you, where'd you put the Song of Solomon? I said, I put it at the wedding of Cana. And he says, there's a lot you could put there. I said, yes, there is. But ultimately, where better to put a celebration of marriage? Which is what the Song of Solomon is, whether you take it allegorically to speak of the marriage of Christ and his bride or whether you take it in the intimate marriage of a husband and wife, holy before the Lord. It's a wonderful cause for celebration. And I love that book, and we'll look at it together next week. But today, I just want us to look quickly again at the passage that uh, Pastor David spoke of this morning. And Pastor David knows his Bible, and he knows his context Bible. And he's also reading along with us. And so he was able to throw in a little bit that I just want us to look at briefly. We've got four minutes. This will be very brief. Next day, Jesus decides to go to Galilee. He finds Philip, says, follow me. Philip's from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip finds Nathaniel. Nathaniel's name, Nathaniel, means gift of God. And said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? you got to be joking me. He's like the Rodney Dangerfield of the apostles. Hey, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him. And Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now. Your reading for this was the story of uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's name means a, a deceiver, a supplanter, a trickster. And Pastor David said when Nathaniel says he was under a tree, a fig tree, thinking that that can be where people did their quiet time, their study, it was very typical, a place of prayer and meditation. And so this story makes its greatest sense if we understand that most likely Nathaniel is off thinking about the deceiver Jacob, whose name becomes Israel. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Now Israel's a deceitful one. Jacob is. But Israel 
is after his call of God when he's put behind his deceitful ways. So as Nathaniel comes up, skeptical and cynical, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yeah, Messiah, my eye. Jesus looks at him and pronounces a statement that shows Jesus knows exactly what Nathaniel had been thinking in his quiet time that was interrupted. Behold, there's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Because Nathaniel's been thinking about Jacob the deceiver who, when he gets the deceit behind him, has his name changed to Israel. So, behold, an Israelite in whom's no deceit. Now, all of a sudden, he's got Nathaniel's attention. Nathaniel's not Nazareth. Now, Nathaniel is, how did you know me? I mean, can you imagine going to someone and them knowing exactly what you've been thinking and saying it? That's kind of freaky. That's kind of like, you. I remember when we had kids that were real young and we'd have the baby monitor on in their room. You got to be real careful what you say in that room because whoever's listening to the other side of the monitor hears it. And you think, what did I say? All good. All good. How do you know me? You knew what I was thinking. Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now Jesus is not just identified what Nathaniel had been thinking about and praying about and studying and meditating on, but Jesus has put the identification on it. It wasn't in eyesight. You were sitting under a fig tree doing this. And here's where Nathaniel falls down and says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus says, just because I saw you under the fig tree, truly I say to you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Again, hearkening back to the experience that Jacob, the Israelite, had when he is asleep at Bethel and he dreams of the heavens opening. And a ladder, actually it's a staircase, it just paints better as a ladder. A staircase descending and angels coming up and down from heaven to earth. And Jesus says, you can dream about that under the fig tree and think about it and meditate on it, but you're going to see something greater. You're going to see a span between earth and heaven with the Son of Man hanging on it, and the, that will be the meeting place between heaven and earth. Angels will ascend and descend. Earth, humanity touches heaven through the gateway of the cross. That connects us to it. So that was what we have. Would you please stand up and let me say a prayer of blessing over you. Father, I ask you to bless everyone who hears your word. I pray that, that somehow in the midst of, of the talk and the PowerPoints and the, the, the presence of, of this, that, and the other, that your word will reach out and ring true. Lord, please bless and keep each person here today. In your holy care, make your face shine upon them. Give them your peace. Give them your joy. Meet their needs as you call them 
to follow you. And I pray that their eyes will be open. Their ears will be cleaned out. They will see you. They will hear you. And they will honor you as Lord. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you.